0: Welcome to the Just Solutions podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. On today's show, we look at childhood poverty. New research shows that it is on the decline, falling by 59% between 1993 to 2019. But despite this historic progress, disparities remain. Black and Latino children are about three times as likely as white children to be poor. Analysis from the nonpartisan group Child Trends says that the social safety net and a combination of economic factors were largely responsible for the decline, so what policies need to be put in place to maintain this progress? Our guest today is Dr. Renee Ryberg, a research scientist with Child Trends, who says our work to end child poverty is far from over. From Free Speech TV, Just Solutions. Renee, it's great to have you join us. Thank you very much for being our guest today. Thank you for having me. As we are in 2022, what does childhood poverty look like? How is it analyzed? What are the metrics to deem whether somebody, if particularly a child, is in poverty? What what are we looking at in 2022?
1: Yeah, so we used a measure called the Supplemental Poverty Measure. It takes into account both the income That families get from earnings from jobs, as well as resources from the social safety net. And it also subtracts out necessary expenses. So things like childcare expenses, um, out of pocket medical expenses are subtracted out from a household's resources. And then that's compared against a threshold. And this threshold is adjusted uh, for cost of living across the country. So there's no one number I can give you for the definition of if a family is in poverty or not because it's adjusted across the country. But it's about thirty thousand dollars a year for a family of four. So a family of four living on less than thirty thousand dollars a year uh, is considered to be in poverty.
0: And so what does that look like then for a child? You know, is a child going to bed hungry? Is a child not getting the medical care that they might need? you know, Is the child homeless along with their family? What does the reality look like behind some of those figures?
1: Yeah, that's all very possible. This poverty threshold is low. We know that people who are above it, even 150%, 200% above it, are still struggling to make ends meet. Um, So it's possible there's food insecurity in the household. It's possible there's um, housing insecurity for the family. Um, it's very possible that it's a stressful environment.
0: Parents are stressing about money,
1: how they're going to put food on the table, and that stress translates to the children.
0: And and I think it's worth emphasizing that even if you're not statistically or officially poor, as the government defines it, it doesn't mean that you have in any way a level of affluence. It is still a struggle that this is, you know, a very thin line that many people are walking. Um, And so... If we look at the statistics now that there's been a 59% drop in childhood poverty since the early 1990s, does that mean that children have better outcomes? Are they doing better at school? Are they healthier? Is life better for those children?
1: Yeah, research has shown that a childhood free of poverty is related to better outcomes in just about any domain you can imagine. Kids who grow up in a a childhood free of poverty, go on to earn more um, income as adults, they go on to have higher levels of educational attainment, they're healthier as adults, they live longer, just about anything you can imagine is affected by poverty in childhood.
0: And I would imagine then you have a multi-generational impact as you have multi-generational poverty that's almost passed down from one generation to the next. When you are raising a family out of poverty, that will have a knock-on effect through generations as well.
1: Yeah, that's definitely definitely true. Intergenerational poverty, persistent poverty is especially detrimental to to child development. So escaping poverty um, can pay dividends for the family
0: for the future. Well, let's talk about what led to this drop. And and first of all, let's look at the statistics. As we said, there are so many millions of people and children, as we're talking about now, behind these figures. But what I was most shocked at, the the 59% is an incredible achievement to have that reduction. But the levels that we were at in the early 1990s, almost 50% of black children, almost half the community of black children in the country were living in poverty. I think it was like 49% in the early 90s. One in four children overall were living in poverty. That's not that long ago. That is a shocking statistic when we look at that. Yeah,
1: in 1993, it was slightly more than one in four children were living in poverty. Um, And that, like you said, there's been a historic decline, the greatest decline since we started measuring poverty as a country. And so in 2019, that was down to about one in 10 children living in poverty. And that's even continued through the pandemic. So the latest numbers for 2021 just came out this month. And in 2021, 5.2% of kids were living in poverty.
0: So that decline continued even through COVID. And I think that's relevant, as, as we talk about why the decline started in the 90s anyway, around welfare and supplemental programs. But with COVID, there was so much concern that people would just fall into an abyss of poverty because of everything that was going on. They were suffering catastrophic medical uh, events, along with losing jobs. I mean, everything was in crisis, but the government did step in and stabilize things to a certain degree. So what happened during COVID that instead of seeing a further decline into poverty, we We actually saw the uh, ascent out of poverty continue for many families.
1: Yeah, this was remarkable. And it was really due to intentional intervention by the federal government. So in 2020, in particular, the federal stimulus checks uh, that most of us received in the mail were critical in protecting kids from poverty. And in 2021, it was largely due to the expansions to the child tax credit and the monthly payments that many families
0: received. So that was more recent during COVID. But let's go back to the early 90s. And a lot of people might remember Bill Clinton's first presidential campaign talking about reforming welfare. And then there were a lot of uh, discussions and stereotypes put forward in the media about welfare queens and and single mothers bore the brunt, uh, unfairly bore the brunt of, of criticism when those who were critical of the welfare system. were were voicing their criticism. So what actually happened in the 90s? Because when we talk about welfare, we don't often dig into the nuance of what different welfare programs look like. So what was happening back then?
1: Yeah, so we found two main reasons for this decline in child poverty. The first is a strong economy. So um, in particular, higher minimum wages, lower unemployment rates, and more single moms entering the workforce were all important factors contributing to this decline in child poverty. The second factor is growth in the social safety net and its role in protecting kids from poverty. So in 1993, the social safety net played a pretty modest role in protecting kids from poverty. It reduced child poverty rates by about 9% and protected about 2 million kids from poverty. And this grew over time. So by 2019, the social safety net played a much larger role It reduced child poverty rates by 44% and protected six and a half million kids from poverty. So the number of kids protected from poverty by the social safety net as a whole more than tripled over the past 25 years.
0: So when you were talking there about the labor force grew more people went back into work and particularly single mothers this gets back to you know what i referred to and uh, certainly the, the first clinton presidential campaign where he said he wanted to have welfare reform a lot of what happened with that reform i think in around 1996 was that welfare was then tied to work and so that is what really changed things in many ways and, and there's been less discussion about how there was then an expansion in supports for people who were working and low-income families so dig in a little bit into some of the programs that were either eliminated or changed or expanded that really changed things for childhood poverty. Yeah there
1: have been a lot of changes to the social safety net particularly like you said in the early 90s or early mid 90s around welfare reform where people typically think of when they think of welfare reform is work requirements and time limits that push people, single mothers in particular, or the image that come up into the labor market. But there are also many programs conditional on work that incentivize work and pulled people into the labor market. So one really important program is the earned income tax credit. This is one program that incentivizes work by basically providing an added bonus to work. Um, And this grew tremendously over the past 25 years. Um, And now, as of 2019, it's the most influential program, the most influential part of the social safety net, protecting kids from poverty. So in 2019, the EITC alone reduced child poverty by 22%.
0: So the name of that implies that you have to be earning income to actually qualify for that. So what happens to families who cannot actually go out and work? Are they completely excluded from that program?
1: Yes. Uh, if, if you do not have earned income, you do not get the earned income tax credit. Um, so there's definitely been a shift in emphasis of the social safety net from in the early 90s, an emphasis on supporting families who are not working to supporting families who are working but don't earn enough to
0: pay the bills. So with so much discussion, even nowadays in 2022, albeit that there's been that reduction in childhood poverty, so many people are concerned about the cost of childcare. You know, what happens when you are working, and particularly for single parent families, the absolute you know, overwhelming cost of childcare. I mean, was a childcare program part of this? Because how are you supposed to go out and work if you can't afford to have your kids looked after?
1: Yeah, so the technical answer is no. We were not able to directly look at the role of childcare and childcare subsidies as part of the study. The childcare costs are subtracted out from a family's resources. So they're taken into account when we're when we're calculating who's in poverty and who's not. But you're absolutely right. Childcare is a huge issue. We've seen this, you know, intensified spotlight on child care with the pandemic. And um, one of our recommendations is that families need access to affordable childcare in order to be able to work.
0: When you were looking at uh, I know you were looking at census data and other data that was available to see these trends around childhood poverty, did you see a reduction in poverty across the board in rural, in urban areas, in all states, you know, across all different uh, demographics, or were there certain statistics that really jumped out at you?
1: What jumped out at us was how consistent this decline was. So, Child poverty rates declined in all 50 states and D.C. They declined for all racial ethnic groups. They declined for children um, with immigrant parents and non-immigrant parents. And they declined for children in single-parent families and two-parent families. And across those different um, subgroups of children, they declined at remarkably consistent rates. So that really surprised us. Um, That's definitely kind of a good news story, but there's a flip side here. Because poverty rates declined at similar rates for just about all groups, it means that disparities that existed in 1993 persisted uh, today. And so, for example, like you said, children in um, single parent families, Black children and Hispanic children were about three times as likely to live in poverty as their peers in 1993. And that is still the case and that was still the case in 2019 so we had a historic decline in child poverty but these disparities in who experiences this poverty did not budge
0: so I think right now it's seventeen percent of black children living in poverty I mean that is an improvement from the shocking forty nine percent of black children in this country who were in poverty in the early 1990s but seventeen percent represents so many families and so many children and hardship so Despite all of the efforts, we've seen this you know dramatic decline across the board, but do we need then more intentional programming to address those still persistent and pervasive inequalities?
1: Absolutely. Um, these families face barriers both to accessing the labor market and to accessing social safety net programs. And so without intentional efforts, these disparities are not going to close. We saw that over the past 25 years. There's been no movement in closing these disparities. So, so you're absolutely right. It's going to take
0: intentional effort. There is a lot of conversation at least happening and acknowledgement that structural racism is something that exists. We're seeing this happening, these conversations at least happening at you know very senior levels in government in a way that I don't believe we've seen before. So while there is an acknowledgement that structural racism exists, that is, is impacting all metrics from health outcomes to education outcomes, and now we're hearing poverty as well. Are we seeing action though being taken on that, either at a state level or at a federal level? The child tax credit, the
1: expansions to the child tax credit in 2021 were definitely a step in the right direction. So the child tax credit is structured so that it's based on a child's needs rather than the situation of their parents. And this is in contrast to other programs like the earned income tax credit, for example. So the earned income tax credit, this is gonna get a little technical here. The earned income tax credit for a child to benefit from it all family members claimed on the taxes must have a social security number it doesn't matter whether they're in the country legally whether the child is a citizen whether they're working and paying taxes the child will not get any benefit from the child tax from sorry the earned income tax credit if someone in their family does not have a social security number this is in contrast to how the expanded child tax credit was set up there's no exclusionary criteria in terms of Uh, social security numbers for the child tax credit. And that's definitely a step in the right direction in terms of having a inclusive, equitable social safety
0: net. You're listening to the Just Solutions Podcast from Free Speech TV. I'm Maeve Conran. Our guest today is Dr. Renee Ryberg, a research scientist with Child Trends, a nonpartisan group that has recently released a report that shows a massive drop in childhood poverty since 1993. You can find out more at childtrends.org. And you can find out more about us and watch past episodes of Just Solutions at freespeech.org. The expansion of the child tax credit, that was something that was supported by so many different groups, particularly organisations that advocate on the behalf of children, to, to point to the very real statistics and the successes around that. As you said, it's directly benefiting children in a way that other previous programmes hadn't done, and yet it's not been expanded. And, you know, you use the word intentional interventions, and it seems then that this is an intentional You know, lack of intervention when we have seen the direct results and the benefits of something like this to not have it expanded. It does seem that there's an intentionality behind that. So I know that the expansion of the childhood tax credit and to to keep that in in the permanent situation is, you know, one of the recommendations of of various different groups, including your own. So maybe talk a little bit about that, that. what the, the concern is now that if this expansion hasn't taken place, the safety net doesn't exist in the same way that it has done in the past few years.
1: Yeah. Like I said, the the decline in child poverty has continued through the recession. And in 2021 child poverty was nearly cut in half again down to 5.2%. And that was largely due to this expansion of the child tax credit. And so by not continuing the expansion to the child tax credit, we risk child poverty rates going back up again. There's a little bit of a risk of us telling this positive story that child poverty has gone down so much, but we know that any child living in poverty is too much. We've talked about the detrimental developmental problems that come with living in poverty. And so there's no excuse. We know what works. there's no excuse to not to continue to invest in what we know works to reduce child poverty.
0: You you bring up a really good point, Renee, that, you know, talking about this and loading the fact that there has been this really significant drop in childhood poverty, do we then run the risk of certain sectors who have not necessarily supported the tax credit expansion or other programs, that they say, look, job done. Look how successful these programs have been now it's up to people to go out and work. We don't need them anymore. I mean, is that, is that a concern when you're presenting this information? On the one hand, you want to celebrate the achievements, but then, you, as you said, you run the risk of then those achievements being interpreted as we don't need to work on this anymore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. When we set out to do this work, we wanted to understand what led to this decline in child poverty, not from an academic pursuit or from an intellectual curiosity perspective, but we wanted to be able to tell lessons learned so that policymakers could apply those and continue and accelerate this decline in child poverty. So the goal isn't just to reduce child poverty, but really to eliminate it. Um, and we, we have solid evidence of, of what works to, to continue and accelerate this decline.
0: Well, another big aspect of uh, poverty is hunger. The two things go hand in hand. And I know when we talk about some of the social safety nets, that nutrition programs and how they changed and in some ways expanded since the early 1990s and certainly through COVID, that significantly helped as well. So so maybe talk a little bit about that. I know we still often fold back onto some of the old terminology like food stamps, but there's a lot more nuance to some of those nutrition assistance programs as well. And they have also been incredibly effective at tackling this issue of childhood poverty.
1: Yeah, the largest food assistance program, formerly known as food stamps is now called SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's in the top three most important parts of the social safety net in terms of lifting kids out of poverty. Uh, One nice thing about SNAP is that it automatically expands when need expands. So, when more kids um, fall into poverty, such as during the Great Recession, more people are automatically eligible to get benefits from SNAP. So, that's one part, but SNAP is not the only part of our food support system. There's also uh, WIC, which is targeted specifically at um, young children. And so, it has a more targeted Um, response, targeted eligibility criteria. And then on the other end, we also have the National School Lunch Program, uh, which serves a, a much broader age range of children.
0: And I know during COVID as well, there was the expansion of the free lunch programme. So all children they did not need to be income eligible at all, but they were all uh, eligible uh, to receive free food at schools, breakfast and lunches. That has also not been expanded or extended. And so From the start of this school year, you have many, many children who are not part of that program. Now, many people might say, well, if you're not part of the program, you're not eligible because your income is at a certain level. But of course, as we discussed at the top of the show, that just because you're not statistically poor, it doesn't mean that you have the resources that you need to provide everything that your child needs. So so maybe talk a little bit about that, that the concerns that some of these programs have ended and have failed to be uh, renewed. And And those people who are, as we said, not statistically poor, but do not have necessarily the resources to be able to now pick up the slack,
1: yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, in economic downturns, in times of high inflation, like we're in now, it gets even harder to make and meet make ends meet for low-income families, And these support programs become even more important. We saw that in the Great Recession, child poverty rates more or less did not increase throughout the great recession because of federal intervention. And so I think we're at a similar time now with COVID so far federal programs in particular the stimulus payments and the expansions to the child tax credit have acted as a buffer to really protect kids from poverty. But that's not guaranteed to continue into the future. And so we don't know we don't know yet what the numbers will show for 2022. Um, but you're right that some parts of the social safety net that were really influential over the past two years have been taken out of play
0: And so what is your sense then about um the idea of the working poor because as we talked about in the in the 1990s when we saw significant welfare reform we saw a lot of the support programs and the tax credits being linked to your ability to work but we still have this issue of people who are working who are still poor and so when when we have that I mean how do we create even more programs so if people are in full-time employment they shouldn't be poor I mean and I know that some of these support services have that in mind that this is a leg up but if you're in full employment, You should be able to get yourself out of poverty. We know that that's not the case. So, what needs to happen? Yeah, so
1: we actually frame our policy recommendations around two parallel tracks. The first is to ensure that work is a viable option for families to support themselves, just like you said. So, in order to make sure that work works for today's families, we need higher minimum wages that are sufficient to pay the bills. We need access to affordable um, and accessible childcare so that parents are able to work and we need universal paid family and medical leave. And then secondarily, when work is not a viable option or in economic downturns, for example, we also need an equitable social safety net so that all families has something to fall back on in times of need. It's really not an either or, it's a, it's a both and. We both need to make work work and to have an equitable social safety net.
0: Since the report has been released, I know the New York Times has done extensive coverage on us and they've spoken to families who have now experienced what it's like where you have say parents who grew up when they were children, they were poor, but now their children are no longer statistically poor and they feel that they're on a better track. Other folks that I know that they talk to are still very much mired in poverty. But what has the reaction been since this report came out? And, and we did talk about this, that, you know, you have to be cautious that you don't want to present these, you know, this good news in many ways and have people interpret it to say, OK, job done. But at the same time, you want to use that as a jumping off point to say we need even more interventions because look how successful they can be. So, so what reaction have you had since the reports come out?
1: Yeah, the, the reaction has been largely overwhelmingly positive. Um, people are excited to have a success story to celebrate with child poverty. Um, there have been a couple of methodological critiques, um, but they don't change the overall story um, that I've been telling here. And there's been there's definitely been some outreach from people wanting to know the next steps in terms of how does this push the field forward? What else do we need to know? And similar to the questions you've been asking, what does this tell us in terms of policy interventions? How can we continue this positive momentum that we have going?
0: Does all of this change have to happen at a federal level? Because we have seen how states can also intervene. I mean, we've seen that with, say, Medicaid expansion and different things like that, Um, and also stepping into the, the breach when some of the federal programs aren't sufficient. So is this only something that needs to be tackled at a federal level, can it be done at a state level or even on a more local level? Because obviously... I think this is the one issue or one of the few issues where really everybody, regardless of your political affiliation, can agree on that children should not be living in poverty.
1: Absolutely. Um, There are things that can happen at the local level. There are things that can happen at the state level and obviously things that can happen at the federal level. At the state level in particular, states have a lot of control over how federal programs are implemented. So states have a lot of leeway over the eligibility criteria they set for different parts of the social safety net. States also set their own minimum wages. So there has not been growth in the federal minimum wage in the 25-year period that we examined, but there was growth in many of the states. um, And that growth in state-level minimum wages explained about 7% of the decline in child poverty. So there's definitely work states can do in terms of minimum wages, and working conditions. And then at the local level, that's where a lot of the kind of non-policy interventions happen. If you think about your local food bank, if you think about local organizations working to provide housing for, for people who need housing support, that's where a lot of the work is happening.
0: Dr. Renee Ryberg, thank you so much for being our guest today. It is nice to be able to share some positive news, albeit at the same time to be cautious about the work that still needs to be done, particularly when we're seeing such ongoing disparities around what's happening with childhood poverty. But in the meantime, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest on Just Solutions. Thank you. Dr. Renee Ryberg is a research scientist with the nonpartisan group Child Trends. Their recent report into childhood poverty shows a 59% reduction since 1993. You can read the report and their recommendations at childtrends.org. You can find out more about us and watch past episodes of the show at freespeech.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and join the conversation on social media and let us know your thoughts. For Free Speech TV and the Just Solutions podcast, I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening.